Well, let's open up our Bibles to Matthew 18, verse 1. Matthew 18, verse 1. And uh, we'll be reading the first three verses together, and uh, I'll pray and we'll get going. It says, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like a child, like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Father, I just pray that we'd all have ears to hear, humble our hearts this morning, give us spiritual ears to hear. We need your mercy, Lord. We need your help. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. As we begin Matthew chapter 18, uh, the disciples ask a question of Jesus. Hey, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, what Matthew doesn't tell us <laughs> graciously, and Mark happens to give us the dialogue of what was happening on the road as they're talking back and forth. Actually, the disciples are arguing amongst one another, which one of them was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Anybody's ever had that discussion? <laughs> Anybody had that discussion in your heart? <laughs> Anyone else at work? Who's the greatest? I should have this. Who's not that? Yeah, you know, you know how it goes. And, and Mark says that Jesus is starting to ask him, say, hey, what were you guys talking about on the road there? You know, Jesus knows very well what they're talking about. What are you talking about the road? And then in Matthew just kind of relays, they finally ask Jesus, well, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And their question was really revealing because it showed the absolute selfish pride in their hearts. And we can all relate. And if you cannot relate, I don't, we, we got to talk afterwards. <laughs> Jesus is headed towards the cross. His, the countdown is coming. He's leaving. These are the guys that are going to be charged with shepherding the church. And there has to be a shift within their heart, a shift within their mindset from carnal things to spiritual things, from uh, fleshliness to godliness. And Jesus, Jesus sees the end product, but he's bringing them there like us. Amen. And pride was an issue in their heart. And so Jesus, he wants to answer their question, but he has to address the matter of pride in their heart. And in doing so, he then answers the question, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So he's address, addressing the core issue of pride first. And so Jesus, as he does, he, masterf he masterfully illustrates and he grabs a child from amongst them. Most likely they're, they're in Capernaum. So they're probably in Peter's house right now or some house. They grab, he grabs a child, says, come here. And he grabs him. And Mark tells us that he actually takes him in his arms. So this kid is sitting in Jesus's arms. You know, who knows what he's doing, right? And he's sitting there and, and Jesus says to them in verse three, he says, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. They're discussing who's the greatest. And what does Jesus say? Unless you become like children, you're not even going to get into the kingdom of heaven. You're discussing who's the greatest. And then I'm telling you, you're in danger of not getting in. Isn't that crazy? Boy, they're having the wrong theological discussion, aren't they? Pretty crazy. They're understanding the kingdom of the kingdom of God was way messed up. They were looking at one another, wondering who was the greatest. 
Who's going to be sitting at his right hand? Who's going to be in charge of this or that? Or why don't I have this position? And why are you that? And why does Peter get to speak for us? Who knows what's going on there? I know we never have those kinds of things on going on, especially in the church. But their selfish pride was on display. And Jesus gives them a reality check and an ultimatum all in one. He says, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of, of heaven, a kingdom of God. And here they are arguing about who's the greatest. And Jesus warns them, unless there was a total transformation in them, unless there's a total transformation in them and they become like children, there's no way they're entering the kingdom of heaven. In other words, selfish pride is incompatible with the kingdom of God. Selfish pride is incompatible with the kingdom of God. If you walk away with anything this morning, write that down. Two things that must take place. Jesus says to his disciples first, you must turn. That's what he says to them. You must turn. How many of your Bibles say you must be converted? Yep. New King James will say convert. I believe uh, King James will say convert. You must be converted. And the idea is there is, is it's not the word for repent, but it carries the same idea. There's a different word for uh, repent metaneo, but it's, it's different, but it carries the same idea. Jesus is saying the same thing. You've got to change direction with the pride in your heart. This is incompatible with the kingdom of heaven. It has to change. There has to be a total 180. There has to be a turn. And some of your Bibles again say you must be converted. That's the idea. Someone who's been changed. They've been turned around. There's a difference in their life. And the word here means to turn around, to turn around, to abandon something, to turn from where you were going, to turn around, abandon it and go the other way. And Jesus is convened that unless they are turned from their selfish pride, that way of being, they would never enter the kingdom of heaven. If it's true for the disciples, do you think it's true for us? What selfish pride do we have going on in our hearts? No one enters the kingdom of heaven because they deserve it. No one enters the kingdom of heaven because they've ranked up. You see, that's the way the world works. That's the way we work in our natural state. And it's under the sway and the influence of the one who's in charge of it all, which is the enemy, the devil. Isaiah 14 uh, kind of pulls the spiritual veil back on a heavenly situation where it revealed the heart of Lucifer who's Satan, the reason why he fell, the reason why he was cast down from heaven, Isaiah 14, one through 15. Uh, I'll just read a few verses out of there, but that's the section um, actually starting in verse 15. No verse 12. Thank you very much, Matt. Get that straight. But Isaiah 14 verse 12, he says how you are fallen from heaven. O, o day star son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. Verse 3, 13, and now he gives five I will statements. These are five statements that, are, that, that Lucifer gave that were in his heart about what his motives are and what was going on. And notice the nature of them. It says, you said in your heart, 
I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Notice, is there any humility in those statements whatsoever? It's I will ascend. I will ascend. I will ascend. Remember when Jesus was being tempted by the enemy, where did he take Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple to the height of a mountain? And he showed him all the kingdoms he had. See, the enemy is always playing upon our pride. He's trying to get us to ascend, to ascend. You deserve it. You need it. Why don't you have this? Why isn't it your promotion? Why don't they talk to you better? Why isn't this me, 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 This is why politicians so easily manipulate us is because they're playing upon our pride. So easy to do. The five wills of the enemy. You see, that was what was within his heart, the selfish pride. And, and it is the power and the sway that he has over us, over humanity, as we have followed in his footsteps since the garden. But it says in verse 15, what's the end of that of Isaiah 14? It says, but you are brought down to Sheol, to hell, to the far pit, to the far reaches of the pit. So, when there's self-ascension, God will humble. Beware. That's his end. And actually, ladies, as you're hitting Revelation 2021, 20, what do you see about the Antichrist who decided to ascend? He was thrown into the lake of fire for a thousand years. And then a thousand years later, Satan was thrown into the lake of fire where the Antichrist had been. The, their end is the pit. There is eternal destruction and those who follow after him in their nature. That's the end. And so he has taken humanity with him following in his footsteps, selfish pride in our hearts. Pride is intrinsically human. That is our DNA. We try to fight against it, right? We try to teach our kids against it, but boy, it's an uphill battle. Is it not? Yeah. On the contrary, those who enter the kingdom of heaven, those who enter the kingdom are those who are poor in spirit. They're humble. They've been humbled. It's different. They're not prideful or at least they acknowledge their pride, right? In their humility. Jesus is saying in a matter of words, you're arguing about your greatness. And this is rooted in selfish pride. And that will keep you from entering the kingdom of God. Keep you from entering the kingdom of heaven. You must turn. You've got to change reverse course from that. You have to repent is the word in their hearts and their thinking and their actions. Right? That's what Jesus was calling them to repentance because in order to enter the kingdom, one must become humble. Secondly, like a child, you must turn and become like a child. It's not saying become childish it's saying become childlike childlike. Now you got to remember this is 2000 years ago in the middle East and children were a little bit more obedient, different culture. <laughs> I would say, um, but Jesus said, you must turn and become like children, humble, teachable, obedient, responsive, submissive, right? And you got to picture Jesus just called this little child and said, come here. And he just come and he, give, and he puts him in his arms. 
And he's sitting there. He said, this is what you got to be like. How many of you have kids or grandkids where they just, and you know, there's that beautiful moment when actually the stars align and they go, you know, that's what we're talking about here. <laughs> Not the, now, you know, that's what we're going away from. But the, the idea of the, of the childless is there's just a, you know, they don't know everything. They're simply trusting God, right? And Jesus is saying, man, you got to turn, you got to become like a child again. And again, that terminology is, is, is interesting. It's like, how do you become like a child? We can't become like a, like children, right? We've already been children as adults. You don't go back in time. So he's talking about a spiritual matter. This should click in our minds as he's talking to Nicodemus in John three says, you must be what born again. There has to be a child likes, there has to be a rebirth. There has to be a changed nature within you. That's what he's talking about. And so what he's saying is you've got to turn and repent, but you've also got to be transformed. That's why they put that word convert there. There has to be a total change in your life. And we realize we can't do that. It's a response to the work of the Holy spirit. So we ha- we're responsible for turning and repenting of, of turning towards God, but he is doing the work within us as we turn. Isn't that amazing? I don't know how all that works, but we're responsible to turn. I love that. And here God humbles us and he, he shows us our pride. How many of you want to be humbled? How many of you want to be shown your sin? How many of you want to be shown how you're, you're, you've sinned against God and your ways and are wrong? No one wants to, because we've got this visceral reaction to being called out. And I, it's our pride within us that does that. And so What's happening here is that God works in our hearts. Perhaps this morning, he calls us on our sin. He calls us, he shows us, he exposes us to our sin. And we have one of two reactions. We go, we become like children and we say, yep, I'm sorry. Forgive me. Or we know <laughs> I'm going to double down on me and I'm going to go away. Right. But we want to respond to the Lord in childlike faith that we come to him and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That's what the Lord would have us to do. But that isn't, there's, there's no pride in that. There's no selfish pride. It's humility. So the person who holds on to their pride will resist that work of God within them. And I would say also, not only those who have never known the Lord that keeps people from coming to the Lord, but also within the Lord, it keeps us from growing in the Lord when we have pride in our hearts, when we don't respond to the spirit. So this is a lifelong battle. And those who resist and hold on to their selfish pride, they're going to be in danger of never entering the kingdom. This is because they won't agree with God about their condition and their sin. Instead, they justify it, right? How many of you talked to about what's someone about their lifestyle and you've warned them and you've talked to them about something caring and lovingly shared with them the consequences. And they're like, no. And they just start telling you the reason why they're doing and why you're wrong for telling them what, what it is. Right? Well, they're holding on to sin and pride there. That's the root of it. And they're not going to respond to his rule in their life. They're going to rule their own life. They're their own gods. And we all struggle with this and they're not going to believe upon God's means of salvation, his son, because they have no need of a savior. This is what John talks about. First John, I've got no sin. You see, pride is humanity's kryptonite. It keeps us from entering the kingdom and we've all got it. On the other hand, the person who humbles themselves in response to God, 
says, it is as you say, and I am who you are. I, you know, I am in that condition. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Think about it with your own kids. When they've come to you or your grandkids and they say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I know few and far between, but you know, there's a breaking. What, what do you do at that point? Boom. Right. But to the one who resists, no, there needs to be more work done there. Right. So there's a, it's, I know that's a kind of a broken analogy in some ways, but the person who humbles himself and responds to God, man, they're going to respond to him in all these ways. They're going to enter the kingdom like little kids. You're going to trust in him and they're going to humbly receive forgiveness going to grow. They're going to listen to him. They're going to obey him. Yeah. You're going to be born again. They're going to be converted. So Jesus has to clear that up with them. You're arguing about the wrong things right here. You're arguing out of pride. This is dangerous. It's incompatible with the kingdom and it's incompatible with who you're going to be leading and teaching and who, who I've called you to be. This has to be cleared up right away. So he does that. And then he answers their question about who's the grace in the kingdom in light of that. Verse four says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You want to know about greatness? The disciples want to know who the greatest would be among them. Jesus says, whoever humbles himself like that child, whoever's the last, whoever's the least. My Mark's account, Mark nine 35, it's same, same account here. Jesus says to his disciples in, in that conversation, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. <clears throat> so here it is church, his church, his kingdom, the greatest in this place right now in his eyes is not the guy who has the Bible open and is preaching. It's the servant of all. That's who it is. And that's what matters the least. And we see God in the kingdom. We value what the King values. And we see people who serve silently and behind the scenes and they lay down their lives for one another, just loving on people and they're caring for people behind the scenes. And we go, man, they're great. That's the, that's the kingdom. But those who aspire to be seen, that's hypocrisy. But if we aspire to serve, the kingdom is the way down. We humble ourselves and then God raises us up. And so if anyone would be first, he must be last and servant of all. How's that going for you? Is that your mindset here in our life groups or even at work? I remember not to toot my own horn, but God had been working this in my, in my life. At one point I was just thinking, how am I going to reach the lost? You know, how am I going to do this? You know, I'd been spent some time in ministry and Bible school and all that kind of stuff. And I was just like, I got to live it out here as I'm going to go wait tables at a secular restaurant and all this stuff. And how am I going to be a witness? Well, I want to live this out. And so I just kind of said, whatever they don't want to do, I want to do whatever the worst job is. That's what I'm going to do. Whatever shift they don't want to take, whatever trays they don't want to do, whatever it is, 
whatever the dirtiest situation is, all that kind of stuff. I'm going to go serve these people. And that was a real hard thing to do because it graded against my pride because people are unthankful. Did you know that? (laughs) I found that out. And I also found I don't like people not being thankful. It's like, I'll be spiritual as long as you like me. (laughs) Boy, that's a whole problem I got. Anybody else? (laughs) But, you know, if anyone would be first, he must be last and servant of all. That's the way the King's kids work. That's our DNA. Listen, when we come to him, we come to him in humility and then we don't lose it. Once we come in, actually we grow in it, right? That is the common DNA of, of the family of God. We're servants. We're not competitors, right? That's very important. You see, the world is the other way around. Although we like to say we want to be servants, right? (laughs) But we're actually aspiring to step over people to get higher so that people can ultimately serve us, right? Okay, no, just me. All right, sorry. (laughs) Yeah, I'm on an island. But I mean, we fight against that. That's That's the flow of the world. Obviously, there's caveats to all that, but the Lord shows us the right side up kingdom. His kingdom is right side up. We're living upside down. What God has designed us for is servanthood. He's designed us for humility. He's called us to be the least. You see when you're the least, and this is the way it is in marriage, by the way, he says, okay, you got all that authority husband. And I've made you that way with that authority. Don't neglect it. You are the head of the house. But what does he then tell the husband to do with all that power and authority that God's given them and all their muscles and all that stuff? You know, what are you supposed to do? Lord it over. Get what you want. Where's my beer? Is that what it is? It's supposed to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Well, what did he do? He died that she might live. Wives, submit to your husbands. Wow. Love them. Submit. Be a servant. Help them to be that all God has, God has called them to be. You see, we're serving one another in our strengths and our weaknesses. We lay down our lives for one another. And that's the ideal. But what, what keeps us from doing that? Selfish pride. Me. I'll tell you, I, I know the root of marriage problems. <laughs> one of two people <laughs> usually on this side, right? <laughs> but those who populate the kingdom of heaven, true believers, we share this attribute of humility. This is how we enter the kingdom in, in, in humility. It's our DNA. That's the family attribute by God's grace. It's now within us. He, is, he calls us to be human, uh, to be humble. If he's within us, right? Cause Christ is in us. There's this desire for humility. We we're, we're checked in our hearts when we're not. Amen. And that humility is the measure that God uses for greatness in his kingdom. We use success and, and, and self exaltation as the measure of success in this world. Jesus says, no, it's the other way around. It's not self exaltation. It's humility. It's losing your life for the sake of others. That's the measure of greatness in God's kingdom. And so 
speaking from personal experience and, 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 and stuff in there's many ways and pride shows itself in, in selfish ambition and desire to be served, to control, to demand respect, to elevate status, seeking attention and all these things. And it creeps so easily into the DNA of the church and into leadership into me, into us, because that's the flow of the world. It's just, it's like camouflage. But see, when we're tuned under the Lord and that stuff pops up, he's like, ah, that's not happening. That needs to be cleansed and gone. And he starts to discipline us and, and correct us because he loves us. Amen. It's not a part. It's not to be a part of the church. It's not to be a part of our DNA. So we know that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Amen. First Peter five, five through six and James four, six through seven. You see, if we come into the kingdom and humility, that's now the culture it's supposed to stay that way. And this is how the disciples were to view one another. And they weren't right. They were looking at each other as competitors. I'm not your competitor. I'm your servant. Make sense? That's how we're to talk to one another and view one another. I am not your competitor. I'm here to serve you. That's the kingdom. Don't you want to be a part of that family? You are a part of that family. If indeed you have believed on Jesus Christ. So the greatest is last. Um, and by the way, disciples are going to still argue about this up into the night. Jesus was crucified and Jesus has to go. Okay. I'm going to the cross and like <laughs> he's looking at his watch. The betrayal is about to happen. And as dinner was happening or whatever it is, he, he gets on his hands and knees and takes a basin of water and he washes their feet. Listen guys, this is the way it works. The greatest is the least. I'm your master. I'm greater than you. I am way over your pay scale and I'm going to come down and I'm washing your feet you do likewise, right? That's what he's talking about. You know, Paul takes his first part of his letter to the church of Philippi to encourage them to look to Jesus as the model of humility um, for their lives and to live it out. Philippians two, one through 10 flip there in your Bibles, Philippians two, one through 10 Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians gone too far. Philippians two, one through 10. What Paul will do in his writings is he'll give you doctrine. In other words, he'll, he'll give you the truth as the standard. And then he'll tell you what you do according to that truth. And this is what he's kind of doing here. Philippians two, one through 10. He's already talked to them in chapter one, but he says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accordance of one mind, man, you guys need to have unity. I want you guys to be one, truly one. And you can see it's just heartfelt here. It's just desires that there would just be unity. What divides people? Selfishness. You gotta be, unified, not a false unity, a true unity in Christ, not a facade of getting along, but a true heartfelt koinonia where we are connected at a spiritual level. How does that come about? How do I do that? Paul? Well, verse three tells us how, what to do. He gives us some guidelines, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Yikes. 
Why are you at church? Why do you give? Why do you tithe? Why do you serve? Why do you do all these things? Why do you help someone out? You know, I got to check my heart on all these things, right? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, right? Cause that's you live in life, but also to the interests of others. We're to live with others in mind. What would be good for you all? What would be, what would you like? What would help you? How could I serve you? What would be best for you? Well, give me an example, brother Paul. How does this really work out in real life? Okay. Verse five, have this mind among yourselves, get this way of thinking going on, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, Jesus in the form of God, Jesus is God. Here it is. Did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, held on to. Although he was God from all eternity, he did not stay with God the father, he's speaking about that in as God, the son in eternity, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Well, how did he do that? Being born in the likeness of men. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. God of the universe, not in the mail room, left the highest position. Talk about undercover boss. And went even below ranks of angels and all the ranks of angels that there are. And angels are mighty and powerful created beings. He fell all the way down to a human. And in the form of a human, he served humanity, the lowest by dying for us. That's what he did. He was obedient even to the point of death on the cross. Jesus did that. And just to finish off the verse, look in verse nine, what happens to those who humble themselves? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed him on a name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the father. You see in the kingdom, the greatest is the servant of all. You want to have position. You want to have influence and all those things. Lose yourself, humble yourself, serve one another wholeheartedly. Forget about what you're going to get out of it. Just forget it. Don't worry about it. Just do it for the glory of God. Love your father, lay down your life. Isn't that how you want to be loved? Well, God says, go love that way. Go live that way. Jesus being our supreme example and God will exalt you. It's the cross. Now the crown comes, I keep saying that, but the disciples and each of them must put up, put arm themselves with their mind, that mindset. Same with us in verse five, Jesus says, whoever receives, we got to quickly go here, receives one such child in my name receives me again, being armed with this. He says, now what's, what's our relationship to one another. And he starts moving to that kind of thing. As you guys have been arguing about who's the greatest, you got to receive one another because, and he says, when you receive one another, when you welcome one another, when you love and accept and 
and um, minister to and care for and all those things. Believers is what he's talking about. You're actually ministering to me. And we know that in Matthew 25, when we get there <laughs> in Matthew 25, right? He, he says, you know, uh, Hey, you guys, you've done these X, Y, and Z to these people. You did it to me. And he's like, when did we do it to you? When you did it to the least of these, my brothers. So there's a direct connection when you love and welcome and take care of one another and do and, and, and lay down your lives from one another, guess who you're actually ministering to. There's a direct connection to the Lord. Just like when someone treats your child well and helps them and blesses them, you are blessed by that. Amen. There's a deep connection there. Like, amen. But conversely, verse six but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to, to stumble, to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Jesus is serious about his kids. Now, by the way, children here, the people use this as talking about little kids. This, the, the term there for little children is obviously not talking about little kids. It's talking about believers. That's, that's what this verse is about. It doesn't mean Jesus doesn't love the little children. Obviously he loves the little children but he's using it in a term that we'd all understand. You bless my kid. You bless me. You mess with your kid. You mess with me with my kid. You mess with me. Right. And he says, whoever causes one of these little ones, my little ones who believe in me to sin or to stumble, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. The implication here is he's absolutely aware of what's going on with us and how people interact with us those who bless you and those who stumble you. Jesus is absolutely aware of what's going on with his kids. Just like our own children. Jesus says to the one who causes his little ones to stumble, it'd be better for you to have a horrific death, large millstone. Obviously you get the, it's a horrible situation. there, having some tied and thrown and you just drown. Who wants to die that way? Anybody? No. It's like, that's horrific. And Jesus is purposefully using this imagery to say the worst death you can experience on earth is better than what I will hand to you who mess with my kids. Is that clear? So what's coming upon that person who stumbles his people is far worse than the form of death you can imagine. And those who cause believers to stumble is an important idea, but the people who are purposefully tempting believers to sin, putting stumbling blocks in front of them, ensnaring us, tempting us, enticing us through all the various temptations, through all the mediums being used, anyone and everyone who causes a believer to sin, Jesus is talking about here causing believers to stumble, tempting them to doubt the Lord, to be confused about the Lord, to despair in the Lord, to engage in sinful acts and to sinful thinking and worldly philosophy and all this kind of stuff. What to walk in and to believe in a way, in a manner that is not godly nor God glorifying all those things. This is all encompassed in this. It'd be much better to have a horrific death, but here's the thing is, that's not going to get you out of it. He's just saying it would be better. That would be a better situation than what is coming. What does he say there? He says at the end, well, actually he's going to say it here. 
And then he, <clears throat> and now, now if you're, if you're thinking the way I'm thinking, we're almost done here. That's like everybody and everything. Anyone else? The world is full of sin. Systems of sin, people of sin, ways of sin. It is so integrated in everything we're doing. It's like, oh no. Correct. Jesus agrees with that. Verse seven, woe to the world for the temptation of sin. He's serious about it. Woe to the world. Jesus said, woe has the idea of being under horrific judgment. Woe to you. It is going to be so horrible. What's going to happen. Woe to the world because it's full of the temptation to sin. This kingdom is not in submission to God. Now here's the thing. Well, we can just throw up our hands and go, oh yeah, the world's full of sin. So what? We just move on. No, Jesus gets specific for it is necessary that temptations come. This is the way of the world. This is the sinful world we live in. He's not dismissing it. He's calling it like it is. But he also says, but also woe to the one by whom the temptation comes to the individuals. Isn't that crazy? Yes, the world's messed up by the fact it's under the sway of the wicked one. There are stumbling blocks everywhere for believers. We know this, but also woe to the person, the individual to whom, through whom temptations come. Listen, the world is not just a a thing. There's people who are causing sin in temptation who are under the sway of the wicked one and all that stuff. God not only holds the world accountable, but the people who make the world the way it is accountable. They will, they, they would be better off suffering a horrific death is what Jesus was saying. And if you're that person causing believers to sin, sinning, causing the world to be sinful, in whatever manner, whatever you're teaching, whatever you're saying, however you're living, however you're influencing people, all that kind of stuff, the Lord has a word for you. Verse eight, if your hand causes a uh, hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Now, before you push pause and go do that, he's speaking in figurative terms here. Okay. So don't go do that. You got to say that these days. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. And it's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet and be thrown into what? Eternal fire. These are Jesus's words. This is the terms that Jesus uses. How many of you are attached to your hands? You like them? <laughs> your feet. Hey, they're pretty handy. <laughs> oh, that's pretty, That's bad. Your hands are handy. You're right. Good catch. James. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire or Gehenna, which was the unending trash heap outside of Jerusalem that was burning forever and ever. And everybody would understand that that's speaking of eternal hell fire. He's using imagery here. That's dire. It's better to have a huge stone around your neck and thrown into the sea than to stumble my little ones. It's better for you to have life maimed. If sin is causing you to move on, you've got to cut that off because there's judgment coming for that. He's serious about this. We're so inundated with it. We don't realize. And Jesus has to use such stark terms. So we wake up to the fact like, Oh no, I am a sinner. Yes. 
Now cut it off and come to me, respond to me that I might heal you. And God's doing that work in us of conviction, right? So there's a literally a day of judgment that's coming for those who will not abandon their sin. There will be a day of judgment and on that day of judgment. Those who have held on to their sin as well as caused the children of God to stumble will rather have gladly suffered in these ways. Rather than be thrown into eternal fire. Oh, don't preach that in church pastor. You've gone across the lines. These are the words of Jesus. This is the head of the church. He is saying these things. May we have ears to hear. You're not going to stand before me. This is him. And notice it's a call to repentance. He doesn't want this to happen upon people. In other words, he's saying sin is so intrinsic to us that it's something we want to hold on to like an arm. It's like we want to hold on to it like a foot. You give up your sin. It's great loss. What do you do with your, 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 what if you have a company and it's ingrained in all this? What great loss you will have and people hold on to it. Like the rich young ruler who held on to his riches rather than give them up and follow the Lord or held on to people holding on to relationships and all this kind of stuff that are sinful in God's eyes. When he convicts us over that, we hold on to it and go, no, I'm going to keep my hand. Do you say, no, 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 don't do that. Repent, come to me. It's better to have loss in this life, no matter what the sacrifice than to face that day. Humble yourself, confess, turn to me and I'll heal you. That's his message. And then verse 10, we're going to close real quickly here. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Don't despise a believer. He warns again, he ends it. For I tell you why? Well, for I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who's in heaven. There are no guardian angels. Bible doesn't talk about individual guardian angels. Angel that's, it's not here. That's kind of a, that's a Jewish myth. The idea here is not that we have guardian angels. The idea is that there are angels charged by God for believers. Does that make sense? No individual angels for children. It's like, well, how do you know that? Well, it doesn't say it. So I'm just going to say that, but it does say this. Look, for I tell you that in heaven, their angels, whose angels, their angels, believers, angels are always see, always see the face of my father's in heaven. So the idea is not that we have individual garden angels, but rather believers have angels who are charged by God with watching over us. That's Hebrews chapter one. You got to read that. They're charged with ministering to us. Those who will inherit salvation. That's, that's who they are. And those angels see the face of the father who's in heaven. In other words, you're not going to get away with it. Anybody who's trying to stumble and hurt believers in secret, all that stuff. The angels are watching. You're not going to get away with it for that reason. That's real quickly. Verse 11. It's another one of those situations where it's in the NIV in new King James, not in the NIV because it's not in the original text, but it says what? What does it say? 
for the son of man came to save the lost. The reason why they put it in there is because you read the next verse and it's about Jesus saving those who are tempted and fallen astray. We'll read it quickly. Everybody knows this. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 and on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices it over it more than the other 99 that never went astray. So it is the will of my father who is in heaven that none of these little ones should perish. Again, the little ones are believers. So what he's saying is that those who do tempt the children of God, when we are tempted by our own wicked hearts, when we go astray, when people tempt us, when believers even tempt us, when things happen and we start to go astray, we have a great shepherd. God will go after us because he desires that none of us would come to destruction. He takes care of his sheep. And I hope that encourages you a little bit because sometimes we've got ones who've believed in the Lord and they went way off the path. Listen, trust in the Lord. Yeah. I don't know whether they were really genuine believers when they believed all that stuff. I'm not God, but God knows those details and he is faithful. Amen. He is faithful. And what does he do? He goes and seeks and finds them and he brings them home. So in the midst of all the sin, in the midst of all the temptation, in the midst of the world we're living in, we have a great God, a great shepherd who goes after us and grabs us and keeps us on the straight and narrow. Amen. I'm sorry. Amen. 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 Yes. <laughs> Time to get charismatic church. God is so good. Notice who's doing that going after you, the father. He loves you. He'll go after you. And some of you are out in the hills (laughs) doing stuff. You ought not to be doing. Listen, He's coming after you and he loves you. And it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. We know that verse, but he also has a way of breaking our legs, throwing us up on his shoulder and dragging us back to the camp. Come easily. (laughs) Amen. Amen. Take the, take the carrot, not the stick because he loves you. He loves you enough to make your life miserable in sin to not leave you there. Come to him. And experience his loving kindness. Sit on his lap. Let his arms enfold you and your sin be washed away. Amen. So next week, Jesus speaks about what do we do when brothers and sisters sin against us? How many of you have been offended by other people, especially in the church? Well, it says to leave the church and don't go back to church anymore. And it also says, find another church. It also says to split the church. These are all great recommendations. It says to not say anything about it. Also to ignore it, to let it fester. It says to get bitter. Those are other things we should do. Am I being facetious here? Am I being? Yeah. Yeah. We do what God does with us. Go hunt them down. Even if they've wronged you. Amen. Read ahead. (laughs) Lord, thank you that you are a great shepherd. We love you so much. 
Praise you for this morning. Praise you for your mercy. Grow us in this, Lord. Let us not walk away. Help us to live right side up instead of upside down. By your spirit, humble us. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you all. Have a wonderful week in the Lord. Take care.